This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the freedom that we have to gather together as a body of believers to fellowship around the teaching of your word. We thank you for our nation, for our president, for our leaders. pray that you would continue to guide and direct the security forces of our nation, the intelligence forces, to find out information relative to terrorism, that you would continue to protect us, watch over us, and to preserve us from harm. Father, we pray that you would enable us to find out the whereabouts of our enemies, in order to destroy and defeat them in their own homeland. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is a light, a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And through the study of your word, we are illumined as to the nature of reality, and we understand the importance of our salvation and our own spiritual growth. Father, we pray that as we come to the word this morning, that you would challenge us with the things that we study Give us a greater understanding of all that you have done in providing a Savior for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're continuing our study on the person of Christ and how important it is to understand just who he was because who Jesus Christ is affects what he did on the cross and qualified him to go to the cross and there to die as a substitute for us. Now, as we come to uh, this morning's topic, we want to look at the humanity of Jesus Christ as it is presented in the Old Testament, the humanity of Jesus Christ as it's presented in the Old Testament. Now, what we have done so far... And for some reason, I keep trying, but I can't even boot this computer up this morning. I don't know what the problem is, but it won't won't boot, can't get an image. So we'll just go the old-fashioned route. You have two streams of data that flow together in the Old Testament. One represents the fact that Messiah is fully God. We have the deity of Christ. Then the other stream represents his humanity. 
Now, they never quite come together and merge in terms of a specific statement in terms of one person, but they come very close and parallel each other, especially in a couple of passages which we will examine this morning. So what what I am doing in the process of this study on the person of Christ is that, first of all, we looked at his deity. This isn't something new. Now, this is an attack today because the question at issue in our contemporary environment is to challenge the deity of Christ, that he wasn't really God. He was just another man. He was uh, maybe more uh, spiritual than others. Maybe uh, he was uh, more revolutionary than others or whatever their explanation, but he wasn't God. And so we began by looking at the deity of Christ, that this was something that was clearly prophesied in the Old Testament, that... Uh, it would be clear who that that the Messiah was fully God. This isn't some new idea introduced either by Jesus or by the apostles. And then the second line of evidence is where we are this morning, and that is addressing the humanity, the full or the true humanity of Jesus Christ. Now, in the early church and through much of the early part of the church age, it was the full humanity of Jesus Christ that was challenged. In fact, that still becomes a problem for some people. So again, my approach is for us to look at the humanity of Christ from the Old Testament, that we see that clearly what was prophesied in the Old Testament was a Messiah who was both fully God and fully man. So let's go through the Old Testament and look at some specific key passages. As we go through this study, I want to, I will focus on first of all specific key passages. Then we will see that four of the six sonships that we covered last time, uh, relate to Old Testament figures and Old Testament terminology such as son of man, which is specifically stated in the Old Testament, but also uh, other terms relate to Old Testament individuals. And then third, we will look at the types of Christ. Now, we won't cover all that today, but that will be what we cover this week and next week. So let's start in the Old Testament. The first passage for us to begin with is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis 3:15, And there we have what it was called the proto Evangelium, the Proto-Evangelium. And in the Proto-Evangelium, the Proto-Evangelium, we have the first allusion or first reference to the gospel. The first allusion or the first reference to the gospel. Just a minute, I think I've got this computer working. At least I've got an image up here. It should show up in a minute. Okay. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed, or between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So this is the first reference to the victory, the spiritual victory that Jesus Christ will bring over Satan. Now if I can just get this to appear on the screen. Genesis 3:15. 
There we go. Okay, now you have it. In Genesis 3.15, there's a prediction that the Messiah is going to be the seed of the woman. Now, this is an unusual phraseology, as I've stated. We've studied this verse recently, both in Wednesday night and in other aspects of this study. Genealogy in the Scripture is usually based on the man. In fact, you read most of the genealogies, you will find a, only a rare reference to a woman. In the Matthew genealogy, Matthew 1, the Matthew genealogy of Christ, there are several women mentioned, but other than that, women's a woman's name is rare in a genealogy. So the fact that the emphasis here is on the woman stands out. Usually it is the ma- the male. Furthermore, we have the terminology the seed of the woman, and the reference to seed usually emphasizes male rather than female. But the emphasis here is that the the woman, and there's a definite article with woman there, that the woman would have a descendant. And this emphasizes the fact that the Messiah would come from a woman and receive all of his humanity from his mother, not from father and mother. So there is the, there, there's implicit in this. It's not explicit, but there is implicit in this, embedded in this, the, the implication of a virgin birth. Furthermore, we see that Eve understood something about this when we look at how we translated Genesis 4.1 the other night. Now, in most of your Bibles it says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And yet the Hebrew doesn't have the phraseology from the Lord, in some of your Bibles it may say, I acquired a man with the help of the Lord, and those words should be in italics. What we have in the Hebrew is there an absence of those two words, and you have this little word, before you have the word Lord, you have this little word in the Hebrew, and that is simp- simply transliterated E-T, and that is the the direct object marker. Now, in Hebrew, you don't have an accusative case ending and in, in indicating your direct object. The direct object of the verb is always indicated by this word, which is left untranslated. However, it's also almost identical or is identical to a preposition that means with. But the idea here is more of a direct object when you look at its parallel with other statements here that I have acquired a man, colon, the Lord. So Eve has understood the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 to indicate that there will be a God-man Messiah, and she is mistaken only in the application. She is not mistaken in her interpretation of the passage. She's only mistaken in her application that this isn't Cain. Uh, Just the opposite, in fact, Cain becomes a type of, of Satan. So the first mention of a 
promise is that this Messiah, the Deliverer, will be born through some sort of special birth, and his genealogy will uh, emphasize the woman. Now, the next major messianic prophecy in the Old Testament that we'll look at is in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And this, again, expands the concept of seed. Now, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we have the Abrahamic covenant where God promises Abraham uh, land, seed, and blessing. And the blessing comes through uh, the seed. Now, the term seed is not mentioned in Genesis 12:3, but the foundations laid there, where we read, "And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." Now, that concept of "in you" is then expanded in Genesis 22, verse 18 where God says to Abraham, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now the Hebrew word seed here, which is the word zerah, z-e-r-a, is a word that can either be a collective, it's always in the singular, and it can either be a collective noun or it can be an absolute singular. As a collective noun, we, we know that there are certain nouns that are singular in form, but they refer to a whole group of people. If it's an absolute singular, it refers to one individual seed. Now, the interesting thing about this is, For those of you who weren't here on Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago, when I returned from my trip down to Corpus, I went down to Corpus just after I had done the Passover meal here for the Lord's table. And we did not have a Passover plate. And in fact, at that time, I had never had a Passover plate in my hand where I'd had a chance to to really look at it. And when I went down to Corpus, they had acquired a Passover plate. Our, our, uh, plate, uh, a Seder platter, and in that Seder platter, there are six indenta- indentations for the bowls for each of the different elements in the Seder. And one of the elements in the Seder is an egg, and that was added to the observance of the, of the Seder uh, after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and the the usual explanation for that is that the egg represents the morning sacrifice, whereas at, on the day of of uh, the 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 day of the Passover, the uh, sacri- there's one sacrifice given for the priests at nine o'clock in the morning, which was when Jesus Christ was first put on the cross. But I didn't realize until I looked at the Seder platter that there's, that in each indentation they have the name of what goes there. And in the, on the Seder platter, the name on that indentation where the egg goes is Zerah. And so what is there, which they don't understand, is that that is talking about the seed. What seed? The seed of the woman. The seed of Abraham. That, that roasted egg is the seed, and this again speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the term seed, while it can refer to a group, uh, in this passage in Genesis 22:18, is a 
is an absolute singular. And the reason we know that is because of the way the Apostle Paul uses it in Galatians 3.16. Now, notice how the Apostle Paul exegetes Genesis 22.18. He says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Now he goes on to say, he does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. So Paul makes it clear that Genesis 22:18, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, is speaking about the Messiah. It is a promise about the coming of the Messiah. So we start off in Genesis 3.15, and we learn that the Messiah is going to be a human being. He is going to be the seed of the woman. Furthermore, by Genesis 22, he's not just any human being. He will be a descendant of Abraham. And then in Genesis 49.10, we come to another element. Here we learn that he will come from the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah in Genesis 49.10, we read, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, Genesis 49.10 is in the context of Jacob's prophecy concerning the concerning his his sons and concerning the various tribes of Israel, and he says the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, indicating that there will come one who is a ruler. Now he then we have the phrase until Shiloh comes, but the word Shiloh here should not be taken as it normally is as a proper name. Sometimes this is understood to be another title for Jesus Christ. But the term Shiloh is a possessive pronoun in Hebrew. It's a possessive pronoun in Hebrew, and it looks something like like this. And it should be transliterated as Shiloh, S-H-I-L-O. And it means whose it is. So if we understand it as a as a possessive pronoun, then that verse should be translated, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until whose it is comes. In other words, the person who is the rightful uh, heir and the rightful king. Now this is the same way in which this verse is, or this word is, is uh, translated in Ezekiel 21, verses 25 to 27. And in that verse, it states, until he comes whose right it is. So Shiloh is taken to have the same meaning, not as a technical name for the Messiah, but as a, as a, proper, as a possessive pronoun, until he who comes whose right it is. So the point of the prophecy in Genesis 49.10 is that Judah, Judah will maintain a ruling preeminence until he, whose right it is, he who to whom the kingdom ultimately belongs, arrives on the scene. So now we see that the Messiah is to be the, a fully human, the seed of the woman. He is to be a Jew, a seed of Abraham, and he is to be from the tribe of Judah. 
Then the next major prophecy that relates to the humanity of the Messiah is in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. And this emphasizes his role as a prophet. The Messiah, as we know, is, is going to be a prophet, priest, and king. We know the kingship is is indicated in the Genesis 49.10 passage, and the prophet aspect or dimension is mentioned in Deuteronomy 18.15-19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. So again, from your midst, your countrymen indicates that he would be Jewish. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire any more, or I will die. And the verse goes on to read in verse 17, The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded them commanded him, it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So the point of these prophecies is that the Messiah is going to be a prophet like Moses. And he will be a prophet like Moses in five areas. First of all, he will be a prophet. And this is indicated in Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Moses was a prophet. Second, Moses was called a redeemer in that he is the one who led the Jews out from their captivity. So this prophet would be like Moses in that he would be a redeemer. Uh, Moses is referred to a redeemer in Exodus 3.10. Moses is also called a mediator. So this prophet would be a mediator according to Exodus 19.16-25. Fourth, the Messiah is an intercessor. As Moses was an intercessor in Exodus 32, 7 to 14. And then the fifth way in which the Messiah will be a prophet like Moses is that Moses is called a leader, Exodus 3:10. So there are five ways in which the Messiah is a prophet like Moses. He's a prophet, he's a redeemer, he's a mediator, he's an intercessor, and he is a leader. Then the next passage we get that emphasizes the humanity of Christ is given in 1 Chronicles 17:10 through 14. Or 1 Chronicles 17:10 through 14, and this is the version in the in 1 Chronicles of the Davidic covenant, given also in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and this really actually begins at the second part of the verse, right about here. And I will subdue, the Lord is speaking here, and says, I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. This indicates that there will be a Davidic dynasty. That's that concept of a house, not a literal dwelling place, but the Lord will build a house or a dynasty for David. When your days are fulfilled, that you may go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. So we see that he will establish a dynasty. There will be an eternal throne. Uh, Verse 12, he shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. There will be an eternal kingdom. This is back in verse 11, an eternal kingdom. I will establish his kingdom. Uh, 
And then, fourth, we see that this ends up in an eternal person. I will, uh, verse 13, I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So there is an eternal dynasty, an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal person. Now, this prophecy indicates that he is a physical descendant of David. So, so far, what we see is that in these prophecies, the Messiah is going to be the seed of the woman. That means he's fully human. He's going to be a seed of Abraham, so he's Jewish. He's going to be from the tribe of Judah. Again, it emphasizes his humanity and his tribal lineage. And then he is going to be, in his role, a prophet. This emphasize, this is a human function to be a prophet. And then in First Chronicles 17, 10 through 14, it emphasizes his descendants, that he is a descendant physically from David. So again and again, these passages indicate he is a full human being. And then we come to two of the most important prophecies in the Old Testament related to the Messiah, and that is Isaiah 7:14, and then Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Isaiah 7:14, and then Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Isaiah has some of the most significant prophecies related to the humanity of the Messiah. But there are some problems, and there's also some challenges in a couple of these, so we'll take some time going through them. Let's look at Isaiah 7.14. I'll put that verse up on the overhead, but you may wish to turn to Isaiah 7 because I want to say some things about the context. So Isaiah chapter 7. This entire chapter deals with the pronouncement to King Ahaz that the conspira- a conspiracy against him, a conspiracy to destroy the Davidic uh, dynasty, would not be successful. In the first two verses, we have the historical background. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. So there is this uh, confederacy, this alliance of uh, Syria uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, and their attempt to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's told to the house of David in verse 2, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. In other words, they're beginning to become uh, afraid that they are going to be destroyed and defeated by this uh, foreign alliance. Then the Lord provides comfort to Ahaz by way of Isaiah the prophet. And he, uh, Isaiah is commissioned by the Lord to go to Ahaz and to do two things. He is to meet with Ahaz and he is to take his own son with him who is called Shear Yeshuv, which means a remnant will return. So his purpose is to comfort Ahaz with the fact that God is going to maintain his covenant with David. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Jeshub, 
your son at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, Ephraim, that's a reference to the northern kingdom, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it. Let us make a gap in its walls for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. So there's this conspiracy to destroy the, the dynasty of David. And then God gives a promise starting in verse 7. And there he prophesies that this conspiracy will not succeed in verse 7. In verses 8 and 9, he pronounces a judgment upon the conspirators. And then in verse 9, God gives a special warning to Ahab. The head of Ephraim, he says, is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. And then in verse 10, he goes on to say, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Now, what's important here is to look at the word you in these two verses, verses 10 through 11. You might want to circle this in your Bible and put a little SG by there, that the you here is a you singular. God is speaking specifically to Ahaz, that Ahaz is to ask for a sign. Now, a sign, and the Hebrew word is the word ot, O-T, and the Hebrew word ot indicates something that is miraculous. This is not normal, not something you would expect in the normal course of events or the normal circumstances. And so Ahaz uh, is to ask for a sign, but he decides to become a little uh, spiritual. He decides that he's going to uh, be a little self-righteous, and he's too good to ask God for a sign. So despite the fact that God has told him to ask for a sign, Ahaz says in verse 12, I'm not going to ask for a sign. I'm not going to put God to the test. And so he rejects the offer and pretends to be uh, too spiritual to do that. So as a result of that, there is going to be a slight shift. In verse 13, then he said, Here now, and this is God speaking, Here now, O house of David, it is a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Excuse me, that's Isaiah speaking. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now, it's important here to note that in verse 13, and in verse 14, we have you again. But here the you is not a you singular. It's no longer being addressed specifically to Ahaz. It is now being addressed to the nation as a whole. Uh, Ahaz, Ahaz's uh, stubborn self-righteousness is indicative of the whole nation. So there's going to be an announcement made with reference to the whole, to the whole nation. God is addressing all of them. He says in verse 14, a well-known verse, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Now, the thing that you ought to note here is that the word translated virgin in this verse is a word that where there's a tremendous amount of controversy. And if you were to look at a Revised Standard Version, which came out in the early 50s, 
may have been 1950, I'm not sure the exact date, early 50s, they translated the Hebrew word here, which is the word Alma, they translated it young woman. So here's the first word we have to deal with here. A-L-M-A-H, Alma. Does this mean virgin? Now, when the Holy Spirit translates this into Greek, in the New Testament, they use the word parthenos, P-A-R-T-H-E-N-O-S, which is the Greek word for virgin. But the contention is, the liberal view is that Alma does not necessarily mean virgin. It can just mean a young, unmarried woman. So that's how the uh, Revised Standard Version translated it, young woman. Of course, all the conservatives immediately reacted and boycotted the Revised Standard Version as a liberal translation, which certainly had it certainly had liberal uh, proclivities because of the uh, makeup of the translation committee. Now, how would they have understood this? in its original context. Well, first of all, we ought to note that the Hebrew text starts out with the word behold, and when in Hebrew grammar that word comes or precedes an an active participle, it refers to something that is yet future. It's not talking about something in the present or something in the past. It's not saying, behold, look at this over here. It's talking about look into the future, behold, uh, a the virgin shall conceive. The word shall conceive is an active participle. Therefore, the point is that this sign is something that is yet future. It is not something that is in the present. He's not referring to a pregnant woman standing in the crowd at that particular uh, moment in time. The second thing that we should note here is that the word here isn't simply Alma. It has Ha in front of it which is the Hebrew definite article. Therefore, it is talking about the virgin, not just any virgin, but there is a specific virgin. It can't just refer to any woman of any time. Now, how would a Jew understand the definite article there? Well, as it was understood at that time, it would be a reference back to the seed of the woman, back in Genesis 3.15, that the virgin here is a reference to the virgin, the woman, going back to the promise of Genesis 3.15, just as we might uh, understand a reference to uh, some sports figure as, and put the definite article in front of his, his uh, designation like he is the quarterback if there was uh, a particular individual or you might talk about a golfer. And just say, well, he is the golfer. And everybody would know you're talking about Tiger Woods. So if you, you could utilize a phraseology like that if your audience is culturally attuned, which would have been the case in, in Isaiah. So the definite article there clearly indicates a specific, specifically known individual. Now, there's two other Hebrew words that we should also focus on. The first is the Hebrew word na'ard. Na'ard. 
And this refers to a also a young woman, but in some cases, and it's possible it could refer to a virgin, but it's not exclusively that. For example, in 1 Kings 1-2, it could refer to a virgin there, but in Ruth 2-6, it is referring to Ruth, and she was not a virgin. A second word that is used in uh, similar context is the Hebrew word betula, B-E-T-H, or B-E-T, U-L-A-H. And this is usually what the debate uh, focuses on. Betula can, in some context, refer to a virgin, but not always. For example, in Joel 1.8, it refers to a young widow. So again, neither na'ad, na'ard nor betula are words that necessarily mean a virgin. They can easily refer to someone who has been married or someone who is married. So Isaiah chooses the word Alma under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because this is going to refer to a young virgin. The word Alma was never used of a married woman. So now it's, this is a subtle, subtle argument here on why Alma in this context must refer to a virgin. First of all, it's never used of a married woman. It's used six other times in the Old Testament. In Genesis 24:43, Exodus 2, verse 8, Psalm 68, verse 25, the Song of Solomon 1, 3, and 6, 8, and then in Proverbs 30, 18 to 19. It is never used of a married woman. It is never used of a widow. It is always used of an unmarried woman. Furthermore, the Jewish scholars understood from the context that it had to be talking about a virgin. Remember, it's a sign. It's a miracle. It's no miracle for some unmarried woman who's not a virgin to get pregnant. Okay, this is a sign. So that adds to the, to the mix so that the Jewish scholars who were translating the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, the Septuagint, around 250 B.C., understood from the context this had to refer to a virgin, so they translated it with the Greek word parthenos. They knew it was speaking of a virgin. They were not, this is not some sort of exclusively Christian post-New Testament imposition on the text. In fact, I was watching something on the History Channel just last week on the history of Christmas and on the history of Christianity and Christ, and they made an emphasis out of this and saying, well, you know, they just came along and changed this later, and this this really is doesn't need to mean a virgin. But she, then the person who was talking was a was a liberal. They just don't. They just are trying to deny anything that would indicate a special birth of Jesus. So Alma must mean virgin in this context because clearly it leaves that option open. It refers to a young unmarried woman who can be either either a virgin or not. It would not be a sign if a if it just if an unmarried uh, woman who wasn't a virgin became pregnant and gave birth. But secondly, if this is talking about a woman who's going to have an illegitimate child, that would create a moral conflict 
with God. God would be using an immoral situation to bring about a sign of the certainty of his promise. So now you have a a moral conflict in the situation, and this would not fit what God was saying. So in conclusion, we have to recognize that this was to be a sign, a miracle, not just to Ahaz personally, but to the house of David and the tribe of Judah, that the uses of the word Alma never referred to a married woman. Third, the context of a sign requires that this is a miracle, not simply an illegitimate child. And then finally, the flow of the context in Isaiah indicates that this would this would be a a virgin birth. In chapter 7, Emmanuel is born, uh, is to be born, it's future. In chapter 9, Emmanuel is born. Uh, we'll look at uh, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 in a minute, the birth of Emmanuel. In chapter 11, Emmanuel is pictured as reigning and ruling. So, as you go through the verses, in verses 16 and 17, a second sign is mentioned, and this time it is addressed to Ahaz personally, because again the word comes back to to you in the singular. Uh, verse 16: For before the child, for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house. Days that have not come since Ephraim, since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. So the emphasis here is that this would take place, that the, the fulfillment of this prophecy would take place in Ahaz's day, but that still precedes the, uh, precedes the sign, which is yet future. So the key point of Isaiah 7.14 is that the Messiah will have a miraculous birth through a virgin. Then we come to the next verse, which is just a page or so over, which is, uh, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And just as, um, while you're on your way there, you ought to note at the first verse of, of chapter 8, verse 1, that in terms of the second son, the contemporary evidence for, or the second sign, rather, and the contemporary evidence for Ahaz, uh, the Lord said, take, said to Isaiah, in 8.1, moreover, the Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Meher Shalal Hashbaz. This is the birth of a son in the uh, contemporary time. This is not a fulfillment of the, of the prophecy. This is a second sign indicating uh, God's uh, blessing on the nation. And the son would be called Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Now, every now and then you hear me refer to Meher Shalal Hashbaz, so now you know where to find it. Okay, now to Isaiah 9, verse 6. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Now, this is as close as the Old Testament gets to describing the fact that this Messiah will be both human and divine. A child will be born to us. That is a reference to his human birth. A son will be given is a reference to that divine son of Psalm 2, which we studied last time. Uh, 
and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, these titles indicate his deity. So this verse is the closest the Old Testament gets to indicating the hypostatic union. A child will be born to us human. A son will be given to us divine, and then the responsibilities and the titles indicate his deity. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, and the word there translated um, wonderful from the Hebrew, the Hebrew word is Pele, which indicates something that is incomprehensible, extraordinary, something beyond human capability. It is a word that is used only of God. So it is talking about the fact that he will be an extraordinary uh, counselor. The second name indicates his deity. He is called the mighty God. Third name, he is called not the eternal father, but it should be translated father of eternity, indicating his characteristic of eternality, that he is fully God. And then the fourth name doesn't... Uh, uh, on the surface, emphasize deity. It is the name Prince of Peace, but we know that Jesus Christ is the one who brings real peace through his reconciling work on the cross. He brings peace between God and man. So Isaiah 9-6 is reminiscent of the Davidic covenant because of the term a son is given. That goes back to Psalm 2 and then Second Samuel uh, 7 and First Chronicles 10. It emphasizes that as a result of this uh, son being given, that peace is established and that it is the rule of God on the earth. Then we come to another passage in Isaiah. Let's turn over two more chapters to Isaiah 11.1. 1, and this gives us another dimension and focus on the humanity of the Messiah. There we read, then a shoot will spring forth from the stem or the uh, stock or stump of Jesse. So it's a picture of a tree that's been cut off and that there is a dead stump, but that there's something live that comes forth from it. And the emphasis there of the stump of Jesse is that he's a rather uh, obscure family that's not prominent in the tribe of Judah, and yet even out of this obscure low family, there is a shoot a green stem that comes forth from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. This stem grows out to be a uh, a branch, uh, which indicates strength, and it produces fruit, which indicates that eventually it is going to reverse the lowliness of its origin into something that is uh, prominent. So in Isaiah 11:1 1, emphasizes that this the Messiah comes out of the uh, the the shoot or the stem or stock of Jesse. So once again the humanity of Christ is emphasized and this relates also to uh, David. Jesse was the father of David. So it puts him back in the line of the Messiah. And we have two more verses to look at, and one of the most important and striking 
sections or of verses is in Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9. Now, this says a lot about the hypostatic union. We'll come back to this when we start dealing with those tough passages that talk about Jesus learning by the things that he suffered and that he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin, and we have to deal with the doctrine of impeccability. We'll come back to this verse because this says a lot about Jesus' humanity. In his humanity, Jesus had to learn just as you and I learn. He's In his deity, he's omniscient. He doesn't learn or acquire knowledge. But it's in his humanity, he had to learn how to speak. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to think and reason. He had to go through all the same processes that we do. Now, he had a unique teacher, though, and this is brought out in Isaiah 50. And the Lord God had given me the tongue of disciples, that is, made me a disciple. That's what the idiom means. That I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. See, the context here is talking about the Messiah. The Messiah is talking about his relationship with the Lord God. He awakens me every morning. Jesus Christ awakened every morning and had a private tutor session with the Lord. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Now, the term disciple means a learner, a student. So in his humanity, Jesus Christ woke up every morning and went to school with the Lord, and he learned on a day-by-day basis. Uh, verse 5, the Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not, dis- I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. This is a uh, prophecy fulfilled in his being beaten uh, at the time of the crucifixion. My cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and and spitting. For the Lord God helps me. You see, in his deity, Jesus Christ could have called down... uh, armies of angels to destroy those Roman soldiers that were beating him. But instead, in his humanity, he relied exclusively upon God to sustain him during that time of testing and during that time of suffering. This is his uh, uh, example for us. He is a pioneer of our spiritual life, demonstrating that we can be dependent upon God and handle any kind of suffering through dependence upon the Lord. See, our suffering is nothing compared to whatever he suffered before he went to the cross. And just as the Lord sustained him, so the Lord sustains us. The issue is, are you going to depend upon him and rely upon the Holy Spirit and apply doctrine in the circumstance like the Lord Jesus Christ did, or are you going to try to uh, make it work on your own? So in verse 7, prophetically, the Lord, uh, the Messiah says, For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced, therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. So Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9, emphasizes the fact that in the incarnation, the Messiah was a man. He needed to learn, and he needed to be dependent upon God the Father, uh, throughout his life, he was personally trained and taught by God the Father and sustained by God the Holy Spirit. Then our last verse is in Zechariah 13:7. Zechariah 
There we read, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associates, declares the Lord of hosts. So here the Lord of hosts is not a term referring to the second person of the Trinity, but here it refers to the first person of the Trinity. And the term my shepherd is a term that refers to the the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. By calling the Messiah my shepherd, it emphasizes his humanity. It emphasizes his humanity. And he says, uh, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate. So that term man indicates that he is a human, and then the term my associate can be also translated my equal, indicating that this man is also the equal of the Lord of hosts. So Zechariah 13.7 is a great verse for emphasizing both the humanity of the Messiah and the deity of the Messiah because he is seen as being equal to God. Now, by going through these verses... What I have hoped to show you is that, that the Messiah is not just portrayed in the Old Testament as divine. We have all the passages, uh, the, the theophanies, the pro, uh, prophecies that deal with his deity, but that he is also foreseen in the Old Testament to be truly human. The two outstanding passages are Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, and, and uh, Zechariah uh, 13, 7. And these come as close as the Old Testament comes to showing that the Messiah would be fully God and fully man. Now, next time we're going to come back and we're going to look at at the uh, other arguments for the humanity of Christ from the Old Testament and go through the various types of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And then we will begin to look at the incarnation itself. So, so far we have spent four classes on basic Christology, looking at the person of the Messiah as prophesied. So what I've, what you should come away with this understanding is that the church does not impose this on Jesus of Nazareth. It is not some unusual claim that Jesus of Nazareth made. But in, indeed, what we have in the New Testament is a precise fulfillment of what was prophesied and what was taught in the Old Testament, that the Messiah would be undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person forever with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to become aware of, of how completely the, new, the uh, Old Testament teaches both the deity and the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, in his person, he is able to go to the cross and die for our sins. In his obedience, he is qualified to go to the cross and to die for our sins. And at the cross, he paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that even in our very best, in our uh, righteousness, that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. 
All that we can hope for is to possess his righteousness, which is freely given to us at the instant that we believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. At that instant of faith alone in Christ alone, God imputes to you forever the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and it is on the basis of that righteousness that you have eternal salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied today, that we might have a greater strength of conviction in that which we believe and the truthfulness and the veracity of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.